You're a funny guy, Sally. I like you. That's why I'm going to kill you last. What do you want to tell me now, tough guy? I said, Bing, what are you doing here? I thought I'd tell you to go fuck your mother. <laughs> you don't trust me at all, do you? I tell you what, you make it through tomorrow without killing anybody, then I'll start trusting you. Fair enough. Remember, Sally, when I promised to kill you last? That's what made you. You did. I lied. All right, this is Kill You Last. I'm Peter Garacci. I'm Alex Peshera. Uh, we have a special guest. We have uh, Burton Fisher on. Welcome, Burton. Yeah, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, th- yeah, thank you. So, uh, <laughs> yes. so uh, Burton is, uh, I met through Twitter, through film Twitter, which I'm obsessed with. Um, uh, so we were kind of going back and forth. I know you don't, we're both New York City based with everything that's going around. Um, it's actually opened up opportunities to have guests on we wouldn't normally have because now we're doing everything by Zoom. Uh, so you're not in New York City, and so I reached out to you, and you picked a very interesting movie. Uh, you want to talk about um, you know what movie you picked and and why you picked it, and love to get get into a conversation about it. Yeah, I, I picked Crimes and Misdemeanors, um, which has always been a favorite of mine for a long time. Um, I really think it can be argued to be. I mean, if you talk about like. America, American film, you know, unlike French film and unlike a lot of European film, doesn't necessarily have a great, clear philosophical tradition. You know, Bergman's films very much fit in that category, Um, even a lot of the French New Wave. And I think, you know, it can be argued that it was the first great one, you know, or one of the greatest. Um, For me personally, when I saw it, I hadn't been a huge Woody Allen fan per se. Um, I grew up in a secular Jewish household where Woody Allen for my parents and their friends was kind of this big icon, you know, and while I'd kind of been a fan of Annie Hall in Manhattan and a big fan of Love and Death because I had been a big Dostoevsky fan, um, I, I kind of went to this with a friend, actually a fraternity brother. Um, we kind of went thinking it was going to be a bit closer to maybe Happy Gilmore. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, yeah. but, uh, Not quite, yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> Although, you know, Woody, you know, Alan touches those places too. You know, he definitely has uh, vulgar humor sensibilities. But we went, and as I said, having been someone who had read a lot of Dostoevsky after getting kicked out of college, which is a story I can't get too much into. I was, I just was blown away. Um, I was so taken by how much it had to say about the human condition, how much it had to say about religion. Um, for me growing up as a secular Jew, very secular, um, what it said about Judaism, what it showed about Judaism. And, and again, it's, it's still really a very funny movie. I mean, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I and having just watched it a few days ago to catch up, you know, it still holds up. It's still very funny. Uh, it's not. Some of Alan's films can seem a bit dated at times, um, and this one doesn't. You know, this one could come out tomorrow, and and yeah, be new. I, I had an interesting experience with this film because I I went through. Um, I grew up in a, a Catholic Italian family, but like a family that was not no books and no movies. So I'm completely like self-taught when it comes to the arts. 
But, uh, you know, I went through a phase where I was like, I got to see every Kubrick. I got to see every Woody Allen. I got to see every Hitchcock. So I, um, it's funny because I was in, I was actually looking through his filmography and it's crazy. I mean, the guy has done 49, 50 movies. And so I started getting into Woody Allen when he was, I guess he had like a late nineties resurgence with like deconstructing Harry and everybody says, I love you. And I saw every movie. I mean, I even saw like small time crooks and, and Jade Scorpion. Those were like even like <laughs> the minor ones. And then I saw match point and I was so repulsed by the morality of that movie that I turned it off. And I was angry and I swore I would never watch another Woody Allen movie because I could see what he was doing was justifying immorality because he's an atheist. And so I, I didn't touch Woody Allen for a long time. And then I kind of learned about him as a comedian and like got interested in him as a, as a stand-up comic and then went back and watched Annie Hall. Like Annie Hall I love, Manhattan I love. And then I saw Crimes and Misdemeanors. And every the thing that everybody says is that Matchpoint is basically like a remake of Crimes and Misdemeanors. But Crimes and Misdemeanors, I think, is a much better film. And it's still, I think, Alan's justification for his bad behavior. But at least he's doing it in a really artful way. Um, I went back and I watched it again today. Uh, no, yesterday. And, I mean, it's it's a masterful film. It really is, yeah. And it's very... And he, like... As a, as a comedian who, you know, thinks about writing screenplays all the time and constantly I get in my head about structure and outline, he clearly just throws it together. He's not precious about anything he does. You can't make a you can't write a screenplay a year if you're precious about jokes. You just turn it out and he cuts and pastes stuff. And like this, this I think this movie was originally had a whole other third that was removed. And he really like he he. Because you basically, you don't necessarily have to have the Alan Alda storyline with the Martin Landau storyline. Like, Alan just decided to throw those together, and it works, and he found a way to, to tie it up at the end. But, um, yeah, I, I it's funny, because Woody Allen, especially in light of everything that's gone on with Me Too and everything, I actually don't think he's guilty of molesting his daughter. But he's well, well, still. Let me stop you there because I think I think <laughs> yeah, like is that a lot? Is that a lot, a lot of, for the intro? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is because I do think there's a huge portion of our audience that may have never even seen this movie, and you kind of touched on the themes, obviously morality and religion and a few other things. But uh, maybe like before we get into like the Woody Allen's like you know whole yeah, yeah it's a lot which everyone to. does seem to know you know everyone at least knows some details to that i think let's let's just get to the some of the plot synopsis of yeah, the movie so this, i mean this movie came out in 89 yeah. um woody allen is in his as a documentary filmmaker he's working with his brother-in-law who's alan alda who's like a real kind of creep hollywood guy and he's going through divorce and he's falling in love with mia farrow and he's basically ready to leave his wife for mia farrow Simultaneously, Martin Lando is an ophthalmologist, very successful in New York high society, has a um, has a mistress played by Angelica Houston, who is losing who who's losing it and is ready to destroy his marriage. Yeah, and he, she's basically threatening to call his wife yeah, and uh, you know ruin his life. So he decides right. to protect his privilege and protect his nice, pretty life to have her killed. And then the movie is. It takes a his, while to get there. But yeah, yeah, but sure, yeah, but yeah, but I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it, the movie is him struggling with 
uh, dealing with the guilt of murdering his mistress. Yeah. And um, I think that's a pretty good synopsis. <laughs> yeah, you covered a lot. That sets it up very nicely. Well, Go ahead. Yes. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I think, you know, one thing is even before getting to, you know, the, the accusations and the actual right. things is that what one thing is very clear is that Alan has always kind of mixed his experience and the morality of that with the presentation of morality in his films. I mean, you go back to Manhattan, you know, and that's a film where he's a 40 mid late 40 year old man having a sexual relationship with a high school girl. Yeah. Um, and very clearly, I would say that's a film, and that's why Manhattan is particularly difficult for a lot of people, um, where he is, I think, kind of arguing his mm. self. But very often what's interesting is that in his films, and Crimes and Misdemeanors is one of them, is he will very often present other people as the moral transgressors and very much often put himself or someone else like uh you know his character is you know he's the artist he's the one who actually has the good sense of humor yes. um he's the one who uh is is kind of you know brooking a really terrible marriage where both of them can't stand each other and he's the one at the end who argues the morality i mean without trying to give anything away if we want to watch it yeah he's the one who delivers the moral message he's the one who says no it's not okay to get this and in the end i mean because god is brought into this which in a serious way i mean yeah you know yeah i don't never got the sense alan was too religious religious no yeah either yeah me either but, yeah but in this one god is, is serious you know when they talk about god's eyes and we have the fathers talking about it so alan in this movie is the moral guy so in very many ways in his films uh and i don't i think in match point even in a similar way he gets to be the moralist in a way that almost you think either compensates or even tries to excuse his immoral behavior uh, in real life. I, yeah. I would see that. I, well, I think um, one, I mean, in, in the character, his Alan's character in this movie is uh, it's, I mean, it's interesting because you could say he's, he's very ready to cheat on his wife in this movie. But he yes. justifies it in the fact that the marriage is basically over. But it's but it's not over. He's he's still married to another woman, and he would he would hide his relationship with Mia Farrow from his wife. So it's interesting. You can't. I mean, these movies are so personal to him. Like he's playing. Yeah, yeah. He's playing the Woody Allen character, and I'm sure in real life he's you know more quiet and less you know theatrical. But he, I mean, he is putting himself in there, um, and I, I, from what I've read, like he is an atheist, and like very, he's very much like a Nietzschean, and he definitely kind of subscribes to this idea that you know, I, I, I've heard like stuff like a qu quote from him is that, you know, if you go to if you go to therapy long enough, you can justify anything, and there does seem to to be a streak in him where he saw the Sopranos. Oh, there you go. Is it? <laughs> yeah, that that was the whole premise of The Sopranos is that, remember Melfi, the psychiatrist at the end, yeah. she finds out the study that sociopaths use psychotherapy as a way to 
to justify and learn ways of doing their crimes. Oh, for so, sure. Yeah. And it's funny because now we've all like we live in such a therapeutic culture that everybody just knows the tropes and the and the language and every, you know everybody's like it's like being in the in the club. It's like oh, this is my trauma. This is my, these are my, you know, it's like everybody, it's, it's so like ingrained in the culture now that even if you don't go to therapy, I think you know how therapy works. Yes. And so I'm sure anybody can find any way to justify anything. Um, but yeah, I mean, as, as a comedian though, cause like I said, we're both comedians. Chris Rock said that Woody Allen is his favorite comedian of all time. And who, I forget who was asking him. He goes, and they were like, really? And he goes, yeah, he's been funnier for longer than anybody. And he's Woody Allen's had an amazing career, and again, and yes, like this movie, like so many just jokes, just like every every couple of minutes, and just, um, it's just it's a really it's really well done. Like I, I think I think this is, if this is not isn't his best movie, it's got to be in like the top two or three without without debate. It's just a really well put together movie, and it's it's a good balance. Just to uh, touch on a little bit of what you were saying. So I, I kind of went into this with no expectations and it really was, um, it was a movie that after I was finished and even midway through it got me thinking seriously about God and religion and faith and whether I, you know, I, I'm trying to think about it right now or come to a, a resolution in my head was, was that Woody Allen's intention to, to, to a secular audience to get them to think about God or or was it more to show at the end that the guy was actually okay and all his worrying was for naught like I mean it, it's a very kind of complex ending because he seems I don't know I, I want to get your thoughts about this Burton because uh, how do you, how, what do you think about the ending of the movie what do you think um, the intentions were from from Alan there well I think it was twofold i mean um you know one is it's his generation you know and he's even a i mean he's an early boomer right um you know these are this kind of generation of jews you know that philip roth wrote about um that were very close to the holocaust i mean Mm -hmm. whether if their parents weren't, weren't survivors if they weren't survivors or whatever they were very close to it so this was something that hovered over them a lot. Um, they were Jews, and I say this as a Gen X Jew who never suffered anti-Semitism, who, who did suffer anti-Semitism, and also, you know, they rebelled against their parents, like any generation, and a big part of that was leaving, you know, religious Judaism, like Catholics leave the church, and mm-hmm. Protestants leave the church, and so I think part of it was definitely cultural. I mean, what we saw with judah martin lando's character right. and his brother greatly played by jerry orbach was that yes. they were very kind of haunted by this you know that you saw two people you know the gangster and the doctor who were still really trying to reconcile their attachment and the relation to their father and their relation to god and these were very close things to them and you know because their father was a rabbi um but then on the other sense i think Alan's also kind of being literal because this is, you know, there's a part where he tells, this is a Dostoevsky story. It's not crime and punishment. It's crime and misdemeanors. There's no punishment. Um, and yeah. he even makes that statement to his uh, niece, who he's very fond of, um, that Dostoevsky, he says, is like a full dinner. And mm. this 
is very much Dostoevsky tale, and Dostoevsky was religious. Dostoevsky fully believed in God. And I very much see Alan's character at the end is someone who is, I mean, because we know he's also just found tragedy because of his romantic loss, that he's crushed that right didn't win out, that God didn't win out, that Alan Alda got the victory, that Martin Landau got the victory. Yeah, absolutely. He really believes that. Um, and Landau's escaped it. I mean, Land in his mind has escaped it. So I think in very much this film, he is trying to say that there should be God. Whether that is, or not that's the argument, is. right? Yes, Go ahead. yes, yes. But that if there's not God, that if people escape, there should be, and also maybe they don't. I really felt like Peter brought up earlier that Match Point is as much a sequel as it is a remake of Crimes and Misdemeanors, in which it's suggested at the end because Jonathan Rhys Meyers' character didn't read Dostoevsky, but he only read the Cliff's Notes that that he didn't really uh, escape, that he may have seemed to escape, but he didn't. So again, for an avowed atheist, uh, Alan, I think, is still very much a moralizer, even if he doesn't follow it himself. And in this film, it very much, I think, is leaving the point that God's eyes may still be there. We may not follow them. We may not believe in them, but they're there somehow. So yeah, I really do feel it's a religious ending. It's funny because I didn't I get agree. the yeah. I didn't get the maybe I like watched uh, missed it, but it's really interesting to think about the Mia Farrow ending up with Alan Alda That's as, a, not as just. a moral. That is <laughs> not a just act. It's I didn't I didn't put that together bullshit. until you said it right it's now. It's such bullshit. It's yeah, amazing dude. actually. Now that I think about it, it's such a good movie. But dude. that's such a guy yeah. like as the ahead, guy man. who's been the smart, funny guy who lost the girl to another guy. Are you saying you speaking times. of yourself? Yeah, I'm saying as as well, somebody who see it that way. I've never it was I never thought of it as a moral failing on the i just thought she was dumb i guess or or the other guy <laughs> from now on i'm gonna i'm gonna look at it as a as a moral failing on the woman's part. it was also an artistic failing and an, yes. an aesthetic failing and for alan and this film those are kind of tied together yeah that, absolutely that yeah. absolutely yeah it's, it's a betrayal it's, of, yeah. of the aesthetic what and he the can't, art that they yeah what he can't stand is that she would choose <laughs> the guy with bad taste yes right. it's like the end it's like the end of purple rose of cairo she had the, the, the real – okay, in Purple yeah. Rose of Cairo, for people who don't know, the movie is about – it takes place in the 30s, I believe, when Mia Farrow, who's this you know, not very happy woman, is watching this movie in the 30s. Mm -hmm. You know, that is, It's kind of like The Curse of the Jade Scorpion, but in the film. And Jeff Daniels, who's the lead, the stashing lead, the actor, suddenly turns to her and says, you've watched this – 10 times now and he's so taken by her he leaves the screen and he leaves and they have this romance well the oh from the movie yes oh wow okay and so now the theater people and the studio people are freaking out they're oh, we got to fix this so they send the real jeff daniels actor out there to woo her and we can guess who she picks and the failures she makes and it's very similar that very much for this film because in because in uh, crimes and misdemeanors you know, there are a lot of cuts to movies. There are a lot of cuts to yeah. movie scenes. The argument is that 
the artistic, the imaginary is more important and real. And that if you go for just the rich guy and the guy yeah. with no imagination, with stability, you failed. So yeah, very much it is a ethical failure on her. You know, not necessarily that she didn't pick Woody Allen because we could maybe get that, but that she picked Alan Alda's character, who's brilliant in this, by the way. Yeah, he's so he's so yeah. good at playing. It's funny because there's yeah. a lot of guys that are they're playing against type in this movie, like Alan Alda. He's great as a dick. Like he's he such really a, he's is. literally known as the nicest guy in Hollywood. And he's so good as a and I, I was reading like I guess they both work with Larry Gelbart who was a big comedy writer, and so all the all all those like comedy like maxims are Larry Gelbart maxism maxims. So oh, it, if it bends, it's, yeah, if it's funny, it doesn't. if it breaks, it's not. So they're you know in a way. How, how it's many times is that said in this movie? It's, it, 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 so they both, it like but it's times. it's right. Yeah. You know, it's funny is I was watching it and I'm listening to Alan Alda's character talk and I'm like. Oh, he's actually he's right about all the comedy stuff. Like he like uh, aesthetically he's actually one of the lines he has is so tragedy awful. plus time. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, yeah. Um, but and then on. Jerry Peter, Orbach you... as as the brother. I mean Jerry Orbach is another guy who's just known for being like always playing like really decent characters and now is you know playing, you know, a completely amoral character. He's great and Angel and Angelica Houston I I lo- I've had a crush on her. She's one of my like older woman crushes, and now she's got like the whole like um, Wes Anderson, you know. The Grifters thing. must have been amazing for you. Which one? <laughs> the Grifters. Oh my god! I love. Oh man, I that book is incredible. I think the book is one of the best novels I've ever read. Like a popular, like kind of not high art novel is the novel is incredible, and yeah, she's amazing in that movie. And she had this run here too, where it was just like a. I think she was nominated, you know, a couple years in a row for. Uh, she won for Princey's Honor, and then did this the year after. And um, Landau, <sighs> Landau bothers me in, in this movie. Like I know it's a good performance, and I know it might just be him. I just might just might like he he. I feel, he's like he's always like licking his lips or something. Something's going on with his mouth that drives me crazy. <laughs> It's it's not a major point, but I'm like I don't I mean I, and I guess you're supposed to like feel uncomfortable with his character, but um and I mean I don't know that I've liked a Woody like Woody Allen playing the Woody Allen character. This might be my favorite of all of the Woody Allens. Yeah, he's funny. I my personal fave is Broadway Danny Rose with him, but yeah, this is it's a really good performance. I mean, it's a very he's a very kind of pathetic guy um and yet uh he's also admirable in certain ways um and and he's appealing yet landau uh it's interesting i mean i think it's very important you know one of the things about the beginning of this movie um you know which starts out in this really lavish country club with not the best decor but and They're praising him, and this guy says, well, Judah, if you know Judah, he'll get you the best hotel. He'll know where the best hotel in Paris is, right. and he'll know the best restaurant. You know, It's all this very kind of upper bourgeois, very rich value. This is not the values that he, Judah's father had. No, this is not the yes. value. No. Yeah, these are not spiritual Judah's. Jewish values. And I think it's very important that we enter that world. Although it's really interesting in the 80s, because I just saw Fatal Attraction recently and saw how lavish their house was. And I remember in a lot of these movies in the 80s, you never really noticed that it was lavish. It just seemed like that's how it should be. 
you know, and that was a little bit here. But in this, it was definitely kind of indictment of that, that this yes. is a little bit of a fallen world. And knowing that knowing that Alan's very literary, the whole notion of God's eyes made it, reminded me of the eyes, um, the opt- ophthalmologist's eyes in Great Gatsby. Oh, okay. now yeah. the fallen world. And that's very much like this world. I mean, you really see kind of, in essence, characters kind of striving for spirituality and reality, even even Judah, Martin Landau's character, because yeah. as much as we know the sociopath is going to kill the woman, he tries for a hard time to fight it. And I think to a certain degree in the center of that is the philosopher that uh, Mark Woody Allen character is making the movies of. You know, the very kind of wise Jewish old man who's writing these kind of interesting things about love. And then, of course, even he kills himself. He fucking kills himself. Yeah, that yes, surprised yeah. me. I did not know that was going to happen. So I like the religion stuff is really important to me. I, I majored in religion at William & Mary. And um, I so I, I, I grew up Catholic. And then we moved um, when I was a kid. And my mom started going to the Catholic church, didn't like it made friends with a woman um, who was Portuguese, but started going to a, uh, who went to a, a Presbyterian church. So we started going to a Presbyterian church, which was a big scandal in my family. To this day, my grandparents are like, you weirdo. You know what I mean? It's just not a thing that Italians, though it's funny, like more and more you meet Italians that are, are Protestants. So we became Protestants. And, and then I went, I went to uh, Sicily for the first time as a kid where, where my father grew up. And they, you know, they have like the Feast of the Madonna and they're carrying the statues and then another town has their, their saint days. And it was just like, I was, it, it seemed like a pagan thing to me where they were like carrying, literally carrying statues around, like sticking money and gold to the statues. I was like, uh, this doesn't seem right. So, you know, when I got to be like 18, 19 years old, I was very fascinated by, by religion. So I, you know, I majored in religion and in Judaism, you know, it's something that I, um, studied and was very interested in i was actually very interested in i took a class called death actually now that i think about it is uh, at william and mary it was a very famous class because it was famous for being really tough the professor was this old german guy and every, the, the rumor around campus was he said that if god took the class he'd get a b which is not true but like if you got as soon as you got to school people were like were like oh my god tifo is so tough and we read about like jewish um uh like death rituals like Kaddish and sitting Shiva and all the stuff. And I remember being like an 18 year old being like, this is bullshit. You can't tell me how to mourn. And then I got older and I realized like, Oh, you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time somebody dies. Like there's, there are things that have been figured out for you. And so I think with, with Judaism, I think there's this constant tension between Orthodox, between conservatives, between reforms of how much is, is just ritual and cultural and how much is religious. Yeah. And so this this movie clearly is about I mean even when he go when he goes back to his childhood home and he imagines the dinner table from his childhood it's his aunts and uncles and his father and mother arguing about religion and politics which is what families uh will do and it's it's fascinating because you know you'll have you know you're one member of the family who's a communist and the other member of the family who owns Sister. his own who owns the hardware yeah. store and he hates communists because he's a he's you know he's in business and it's just it's interesting for me because I, I don't think I think films, you know, rightfully because it's really hard to do shy away from religious debate. And so I think it's admirable that Woody Allen 
even would take this on. But I do think, I mean, I think the end of the movie is Martin Landau feeling okay after time that he got away with murder. And I think that's Woody Allen's um, morality. No. Yeah, no, I, 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 I... Go ahead. Oh, sorry. sorry. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I guess I disagree. I mean, I, 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 I'm with Burton. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think one thing is clear is that Judas. I mean, like I said, Judas is a sociopath, and 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 very clearly the brother is too. I mean. Oh yeah. Yeah. Neither of them. It's one thing that's very clear. Whatever, whatever quote unquote ethical conflict Judah is going through over whether I should kill this woman or not is not real. I mean, the, the, that's that great like scene where he's with his brother, where he says, yeah, well, what would you do? Could you do something? And the brother goes, well, we could kill her. And he goes, oh, that's terrible. And, oh, that's just awful. I don't hear about it. And the brother's yeah. all, okay. I, he's all, but, well, what would you do? He's like, you know, he, he wants to get his brother to do it. His then, brother knows. His brother's like, well, yeah. why'd you call me then? He keeps exactly. saying that. Yeah. Exactly. And, and his brother, we get the idea that his brother has spent his life resenting this perfect older brother that he knew. That obviously everyone always loved Judah, and he was the bad boy gangster. But you know, brothers know. Any of us know this. We know that our brother really is a piece of shit. I mean, like, yes. Excuse yeah. me. Sorry. Um, no, no, you can't. Yeah. It's fine. But um, yeah. So whatever Judah's going through is just process. He's just going through process that he can come out of this. He can save his family. Uh, he and also the the. Uh, embezzling clearly that's a big thing mm-hmm. yeah. and i think that's the real one that, that got her killed is that we see all this praise that he would have gotten the, the community might have forgiven him having an affair that's what people do um but he ripped off the community so i really think that what it was saying was not yes this is what he should have gotten away with it it's that people like judah do get away with it exactly and, and that's part Part of understanding, and, and we saw that in the conflict, in the discussion that you brought up with the sister, when the sister, and that's another at the, Jewish at the dinner table, right? Exactly. Yeah. Because you know most Marxists, most you know that's another that's a big Jewish tradition too, is is Marxism yeah. is uh, leftist thought. So um, what we saw, remember when she asked her brother, uh, "Would you choose truth? Would you choose?" God over truth? And he said, yes, I would always choose God over truth. And so in this, what we're seeing is that to sometimes recognize what where God fits in the world, one has to actually kind of see both. And that's kind of what Alan's character was doing. And that's what I was kind of saying is that Alan's kind of always conveniently makes himself the one that is the wisest. In the end, yeah. he's the wisest. He knew the art. Uh, his film that he did about Alan Alda was just hilarious. And, and with, just with Mussolini. <laughs> yes. That was hilarious. Yes, yes, yes. 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 So, so, no, I, I think actually what this movie just says is that the people who get away from this are both godless and they're, t- they're, they're tied to a kind of truth in that he got away with it. But the deeper truth that is tied to God, he he lost, and probably Judah never had it from yeah. the get go. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is a movie. No, that I'm I gonna... totally, I totally agree with that. I think that it's basically saying that you know, this it's not making the case for God, 
it's making the case that there should be a God. And I think you said something like that before. Yes. But I think that that's exactly what is going on at the end of that film. And that's that's what you're supposed to feel. That that basically that the Woody Allen's character is... Or, you know, I think he's, set, he's framing it in a way that it's like, wow, this guy got screwed over. Uh, but it's not even necessarily that. It's more that the other uh, two characters that were, you know, quote unquote immoral are getting away with it. And that's not right. And that's not just, well, I I think, I think that's that's where the, that's where the Nietzschean comes in where it's like, I mean, people say God is dead. It it wasn't like God is dead. Yay. Let's go have fun. It's God is dead. Uh Oh, look, wait, wait till you see what, what happens next. And I think that's something that, that Woody Allen and other artists grapple with too. It's like, I mean, there's so many movies that are about is he wrong i mean even 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 how it's funny because i i googled i was watching um some other john houston stuff and i love i mean i love john houston's amazing like the houston family like is one of the great like hollywood families and angelica you know Mm -hmm. is an inheritor of that but i'm what i'm reading angelica houston's imdb and as a daughter of hollywood you Mm -hmm. know her her you know her father Mm -hmm. had I, how many kids from how many different women and then she was like as a teenager she was involved with an older man and then another another man who was much older she was at uh the house when roman polanski raped the girl at jack nicholson's house and the police actually oh. um questioned yeah. her which i didn't even know that till till today when i looked up her w- wikipedia so it's like they you know hollywood there's a lot of justification for a lot of a lot of behavior and you it produces a lot of great artists that are definitely morally compromised which i mean woody allen is literally the poster boy um for that which i think is again which i think is interesting because i i do think that you can separate the art from the artist i don't need, yeah definitely i don't need, I don't oh, need sorry, to be boy scouts you know well yeah definitely i mean i you know i say this as a as a jew who loves wagner and i mean i probably I probably liked it even more than it pissed my father off. <laughs> I, you know, I, I like, you know, I really, I think, and also as an English lit person who, you know, Faulkner had his issues. I think one of the issues comes up is it's a more difficult when they're alive, you know, yeah, um, yeah. for me, I mean, for me, the main thing is I, uh, this is my personal thing is that I won't give money anymore to someone I feel has crossed the line. But the notion that I don't, mm. that I can't enjoy their work anymore, or that that touches their work, is I think silly. And I think the the, the 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 flip side of that is people who think like Woody Allen's music's brilliant, so he has to be innocent. You know? Right. Yeah. For me, yeah, I have no. And I watch this movie. I have no problems. It's interesting though that the scene, him wanting to have two. Now, I don't say this about the movie or the character. I don't think what the character did anything wrong with the young girls. Um, you know, he's taking his niece to go see the movie. Oh, so that's right. Great. The character in this movie. Yeah. Yes. No, no, no. This judgment isn't on him. Although, I, I think more of the part, him taking her two days in a row, was because he was lonely. And she was maybe the only person in his life who liked movies and got art. So, in essence, and sometimes we do this. Sometimes I, I have nieces and nephews I like. And... We say sometimes we forget they're not our buddy. They got to be kids. But yeah. I don't think he was doing anything wrong. However, watching this, knowing what <laughs> he's done before, it's right. hard not to take that. That being said, I still don't judge this character. In that. Well, because he's at the towards the end. He the last I think when he's eating the pizza with her, he's talking about like his sex life with her. 
Yes, and I right. got unco- I was like, oh, it's right. Not- I forgot that. It's one thing to be like, hey, I'm the cool uncle that takes you to the movies. It's another thing to be like, hey, so listen, so I got this one girl that I'm trying to bang. Uh, while yeah. I'm trying to get r- get rid of my wife, it's like ah, that's. <laughs> Yeah, and then there was also stuff, you know, in the early 90s or late 80s where he was setting himself up to have, like, make-out sessions with Mira Sorvino while he's 70-something years old. Oh, because he wrote because he wrote the freaking script. You get to do that yes. when you're the writer of the script. <laughs> exactly, which I think, though, I think as his career went forward, that's, um, that's kind of gone away. So myself, personally, what I feel, and I don't put this on anyone else to the degree, I, on myself, I do believe the girls, I think... The fact that he married his step stepdaughter at 16 says a lot about boundaries. That doesn't mean I think he necessarily did it. That being a part, though, I still think his work is brilliant. And yeah. I think his work is people, stuff people should see. And I think same I thing agree. like I think with Pablo Picasso or Faulkner or or the you know, I read I read and teach Heidegger, who was a Nazi. I think as long as you can keep those things separate, that's that's not an issue. And I think it's also important to really realize that Alan arguably was the best director of the 80s and that you can't take that away from him. I mean, he did Broadway Danny Rose, Hannah and Her Sisters, Selig, Crimes and Misdemeanors, and Purple Rose and Pyro. I mean, those are five really masterful films. So I think, honestly, once he dies, uh, all this will go away. I think what happens is people have some anxiety that they're maybe helping him, but but I don't think they are. So what I'm saying is I don't think anyone who feels he did it should feel guilty or wrong about enjoying his films, and I don't feel anyone who doesn't feel that it should feel guilty about that either. Yeah, well, we—I mean, we as comedians, no, we're dealing with that right now. Like, I Louis C.K. is is my hero. I think Louis. I I saw Louis a, a couple weeks before the lockdown happened, the show that he then turned into now another special, and I'm watching him, and I'm I'm in the audience, and I go, and I thought to myself, I was like, he might be the best who ever did this. This might yeah. be the best guy that's ever done this. He really might be. And you have to. And, and it's funny because people will say, oh, Bill Cosby was never funny. Or Dennis Miller, whose politics <laughs> yeah, I don't agree crazy, with, was though. never funny. Or It's like, come on. Like, have some, like, like some kind of integrity. What, you know and I like I well no it, yeah okay, let me just say because because Burton just made a point and I, I think it's it's worth repeating or at least rephrasing like what is the flip side of that if you think that you you can't like someone who had you know you can't like someone's art who's done something wrong the flip side of that is that you know someone who makes good art can't do anything wrong so th- like if you subscribe to that at all in either direction you're just it's dangerous because basically you're saying that, you know, you may let your love for someone's art um, cloud your judgment of their character. And that's, you shouldn't do that either. You know what I mean? Like, am I making any sense here? No, absolutely. Yeah. Like it's, I, I'm a little bit, you know, convoluted and I, I and I'm not trying to be, I wish I could speak. We, better, like but, I, China, Chinatown is one of my favorite movies of all time. And the way I justify it is it was made by Roman Polanski before he was accused yeah, but that's a silly that justification. Girl. No, but it I'm really just saying, is. like, I, it, I think it's kind of what Burton is saying is that I don't want to, I, I don't want to go give money today to Roman Polanski. I will, no, not, but I, I will not go see his new movies. The fact that they're, the fact that a couple years ago they're giving him an Oscar and standing up, and now the same people are, you know, giving him sure. a standing ovation at the Oscars, and then the same people are turning around 
and going after other people is is the, the height of hypocrisy. But that being said, Chinatown is a masterpiece and Rosemary's Baby is a masterpiece. Yeah. I guess what I would just say is that, like I said, I, I feel that no one – I mean I literally know people that if a Woody Allen movie or Roman Polanski comes on Netflix free, will not watch it. I mean it literally will not – and I'm not saying you're doing that. No, um, no. And, but I, like I said, I, I think there is a real argument to be made that I don't want to give money – to the person but if you start closing one thing one thing i think a lot of people forget is that and i know people might not like this artists actually tend if you've looked on the flip side whether good or bad people bad they usually and it's not necessarily because they're bad per se but artists per se are very art demands being involved in yourself art demands being involved in your vision you know it it's not inherently communal there's definitely communal places but True. art feeds egoism and i'm not saying there are wonderful artists out there and there are artists who become better people but if you start from the point saying i like art but i won't watch it because of the bad people you pretty much already cut two-thirds out yeah so that's what people need to it's know. funny because i want to i want to quote uh the great sylvester stallone who's the patron saint of this podcast uh he did uh i, I i'm not kidding i love sure. fly but he yeah. he did a he did like an Instagram live or something, and then somebody put it on YouTube, and I watched it this morning, and he's answering um, questions from fans, and at the end he said something about I actually tweeted it. it says there's an angst that makes for greatness, like literally the artist has to be have angst. Yes, and I think that's absolutely true. A person who's even keeled and balanced has no impulse to create at all. It always comes from um, there's I if I'll think about it in a second. But David Milch is another one of my like heroes. The guy's a heroin addict, a degenerate gambler, and he you know basically you you wouldn't be compelled to create if ev- you thought everything was was hunky dory the way it was. So yeah, that absolutely. that that feeling of angst, that feeling of why do I feel weird or why don't I why does the world seem strange to me is where is where those where that creative impulse comes from. And, you know, that's, I mean, that's why, that's why artists make fun of like the the kind of the the square people because they don't, you know, there's, there's a million comedies where there's a character, there's a character that it's like, oh, wow, I never, I never thought of that. And like, that's the punchline of the joke is that the regular people don't see the world the same way that the artist sees it. That's just, that's just the nature of it. No, I completely agree. I mean, it. Did you guys ever see Sweet and Low Down? Yeah, I love it. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that was. I mean, to me, a perfect example. I mean, and that character was. I mean, we don't quite know who. Well, I mean, Alan had. That was nothing interesting about this movie is because you know Alan had this really storied, ang- angst, angst, edible angst, admiration for Bergman. You know, it was very yeah. clear. You know that he just idolized Bergman, and there's that part even in Manhattan where Diane Keaton's running off her obnoxious, overrated list, and she lists Bergman, and he says to his girlfriend, if she would said one more thing about Bergman, I was like, you know, and he tried with September, although September's a little Chekhov, too, but with interiors, definitely. And and actually, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Sven Nykvist, who was Bergman's cinematographer, is the cinematographer. And it, what was interesting about this one is I felt this movie where he kindly freed himself from it because crimes and misdemeanors really isn't 
uh, Bergman-esque. It, it, it seemed much more, and, and we're talking about the anxiety, it seemed more to come out of his own anxiety instead of his own life, instead of the anxiety to be uh, Bergman. And uh, I think Sweet and Low Down, which, remember, he had this thing with, oh, with Django Reinhardt, you know, that any time that I think was very much an expression of that. But yeah, artists very much come from that. I mean, you talk about comedians, comedians are kind of the height. I mean, uh, I think from what I'm telling this to a comedian, I know that, but um, the comedians almost all come from points of childhoods of insecurity, childhoods of anxiety, not quite fitting in that, you know, kids who have extremely well-adjusted childhoods with extremely loving parents who are the most popular kids in school don't usually turn out to be comedians. No. Why would you ever? Like, yeah. Would, it's so hard to do it, uh, it the, the way it is. Like why, if you've already got other stuff going for you, why would you bother with this? But that's, I mean, that's why it's so fast. Like I've always been, even when I ran away from being an artist for a long time and I, I actually like got into stand-up comedy what's considered late in life. Um, even though I've been told my whole life that I should be doing this because I was kind of running away from this artistic impulse and didn't, didn't trust it or didn't believe it. And, and I thought that I wanted to be just kind of a regular person. And then it's funny because you, you then decide to do the thing and commit yourself to it. And then all of a sudden you start meeting other people who are doing the same thing you're doing. And then you go, Oh, all these like all these things that I thought were um were you know like personality flaws if I had you know if I had a regular job make me good at this other thing I'm like oh I'm now I'm around all the other people that are are like me and it's great to finally find that like a community of uh, of artists and that's why I mean like I again I've never made a film but I imagine like Woody Allen starting out as a as a stand up and he, and he was, you know, he was in the writer's room. He was a TV writer. But, like, mm -hmm. being able to then be a filmmaker where you're literally the god of whatever you're making and you get to, you know, put together a team of people and, act, and direct the actors and, and write the script. Like, you, you literally get to create whatever world you want to create. And I can see why, like, a comedian, you know, it's a very, it's a very easy to see why a comedian would want, would want to do that because we're literally alone in a you know, on stage trying to, you know, wrangle a room of, of, uh, strangers to, to laugh when we want them to laugh, you know, that's, it's, that's a little bit of a power trip too. And being a oh movie my God. director, yeah, that, like, I mean, talk about peak narcissism. It's a stand up comedian because it's, it's an artist, but it's an artist who literally doesn't have to work with anyone or, yeah. you know, to produce the art. I mean, and, and, and the idea of demanding laughter from, I mean, you'll see it all the time. You see comedians when they do jokes that they know work, and they don't, you know, if they're doing them in front of an audience that might not be paying the closest attention or is just not really in it, they get mad at them. And it's just so <laughs> it's such an uh, it's such a ridiculous expectation that like they have to laugh at these jokes. But uh, you see it. You see it all the time if you do comedy and, and if you go to these clubs every night like we used to before when we were let outside the house. But yeah, Larry David used to actually do that. Uh, apparently, every time he went up there, if they didn't. Not only if they didn't laugh, if they kind of laughed the wrong way, yeah. or if they laughed in the wrong sense, he mm -hmm. he just dropped the mark and say, "Blank all of you, you know, yeah. go blank yourself." And and he'd walk off. And Michael Richards, who you know Kramer from Seinfeld, so he was watching and he's thinking, "Wow, that's a great 
bit. You know, he thought it was a big joke, and he, but he never came back. You know? <laughs> I mean, the, the, the funniest That's thing hilarious. about Larry David is Larry David is essentially a failed stand-up comedian. Like, oh, yeah. Well, that's a little harsh. Well, but he, true. I mean, he, I, he, no, he, I hear you. I hear he, what you're saying. You know, he like he, his friendship with Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, he's not. Uh, I don't think he lucked into like oh, no. being a he, genius TV writer. He's like, a genius television but he, guy. You know, he, sure. he he wouldn't have been a touring comic by any any means. He wasn't. He wasn't building an, his own audience. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. He I'm was sure. somebody. He's a comedic mind and a comedic genius, but not the. Uh, you know, you could put him in the same category with like a Kevin Hart where people like are dying to go see him live. Well, yeah, no, but what's interesting is he could, you know, I always think about those guys who make it in comedy that did stand up, right? Like guys like Judd Apatow. So they were doing stand up and then they failed basically at that. And then they succeed in comedy, but just in a different, yeah. you know, media. I always wonder like, okay, so Judd did go and do a Netflix special. Well, why didn't Larry David ever do that? He could totally leverage his fame and his audience. Like he, he could probably crush. He could probably do an amazing stand-up hour. Yeah. But he, but he's sticking to his, you know, what actually, what he's actually good at, or what act, what he's good, actually, I mean, you know, prolific him. at. No, I, I agree with that too. I, but it's to me, it's like, would I be able to turn that down if that was the first thing I tried and it never really worked out? See, my, know? I mean, Albert Brooks is one of my guys. I love mm-hmm. Albert Brooks. And he also, like, stand-up comedian, became a filmmaker. And, pe- and people always, like, I, I feel like people think, like, Albert Brooks is, they, they always compare him to Woody Allen, which I don't think is a fair comparison. But Albert Brooks uh, like, tells a story where he was doing stand-up. And, you know, back then he was opening for bands. So yeah. he was on That's tour crazy. with like <laughs> so with nuts. Sly and the Family Stone playing in right. front of twenty thousand people as the opener, mm-hmm. and um, he told the story that uh, and I say that they were you know say the show was in Memphis, and uh, he you know he goes he gets on stage he does his time and uh, they go you know we need you to do more time Sly's uh, Sly's gonna be a little while he goes well how long how long is he gonna you know how much more time do you want they're like a couple of hours Sly's in Minneapolis. And he's like a couple of hours, yeah. and he's like, I never did stand up again. And I like, I, I totally get that where you're like, it, I mean, because especially like that kind of neurotic temperament that would make you want to be funny in the first place would also make you the kind of person that would want to kill somebody for putting you in that situation. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like you can't, like that, you just can't even fathom, like. Being, like, because because you're because you're because rock stars are cool. Everyone's yeah. like, oh, that guy's cool. He's you know he's a couple hours late. The comedian is not is not the cool guy in the same not way cool. that the rock star no, is cool. No, 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 very yeah. different. Yo, know, I'm glad you brought up Brooks and uh, yeah, I think I honestly they they get I mean I think Brooks is a little bit younger, but they primarily get connected mainly because they're one they're comedians and they're writers and they're Jewish, yes. but they are really different. I mean. Uh, well, Brooks is a lot drier, you know. Yeah. Uh, Brooks, uh, he seems to come a little less from, you know. Um, Alan really comes from that show of shows, but up bum, you know. He yeah. really loves the the funny, funny, funny joke. What villain? Yeah. Yes. While Brooks, you know, like Lost in America, you know, he, when he's he's appealing to Frank Martin, Carrie Marshall, and he's like, the Desert Inn has art. I mean, Desert Inn has art. You know, trying to get him. To, One of the greatest scenes their, in like the history yeah. of the movies. <laughs> and, and those are really different. I, I think another difference, and I say this as 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 a Jew, is that uh, you know, Alan's stuff is it's always it's always like the cones. 
you know, even when the Coens are doing a Western, even when they're doing True Grit, or when they're doing Raising Arizona, it always has a Jewish sensibility. Yeah. You know, like yeah. Raising Arizona, you know, when he asks, when um, William Forsyth asks the the uh, store owner, he says, do you have any of those balloons that come in funny shapes? He's like, no, unless you think round's funny. You know, that's very much, it's there aren't Jewish people, but that's very much uh, kind of the cat skills type stuff. And Brooks' stuff is really, if you didn't know he was Jewish, you, you wouldn't know. And I we, think that's well, a big difference. I think that the comparison is because Albert Brooks stars in, in the movies that he makes and that he's playing a, a type of Jewish neurotic the same way Ooh, as the but he but but Albert Brooks is also a, a Los Angeles Jew and not a New York Jew. I think that's where yeah. like I think there's more of like a he's always got a tan and he's a little bit more laid back because he grew up in LA than and he's always up. playing executives, which Alan would you never believe Alan could even have a, a, a good suit. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's funny because you know, today I thought of thinking about crimes and this misdemeanors, I thought about the Coens. And I love, I mean, the Coen brothers right now are probably my, my, of, of the people still making movies today, they're, they're my favorites. Like I can't even, and I go back and watch, rewatch their movies. And every time I rewatch one of their movies, I get more out of it. And there, there is, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of life and death and existential, you know, stuff in all of the Coen's, Coen's movies. And, yeah, um, seriously. It's so and it's so smart and it's so well done and I and I like that the Coens, the their, the endings of their movies are confounding, which I like. Yeah. They they never tell you what you they think you should think, and I think that's why the movies reward constant rewatching because you're never getting hit over the head, saying, "Well, this is the moral of this story," you know. And they're funny, and they're well done, and they're shot great, and it's just like a perfect marriage of everything um, together. It's funny that you brought up Sopranos because as a as an Italian from Jersey, uh, <laughs> Sopranos is very important to me. Um, and the hardest, I, it's hard for me to go back and watch the Sopranos uh, just because of the mom, the Livia character, because that's my grandmother. Like it makes my skin crawl to hear like that sort of borderline personality, like constant mm. drama mom mm -hmm. who you know belittles her like that literally was what i grew up around and i just can't watch it but like there's a lot of i'm sure david chase is a woody allen fan because there's a lot of this like grappling with meaning and morality that runs throughout the the sopranos that is sort of the jersey italian version of what woody allen was doing that's that's really well, interesting. absolutely i mean i, I mean I, uh, it makes me think, I don't know if you guys remember from like the end of the show, after AJ tried to kill himself, I think the second time, mm -hmm. and, and again, as I was saying, that we're just at the point where Melfi, the doctor, finds out that Tony's been scamming him. And he's really been scamming us, too, because Tony's this kind of likable, charming guy, Yes, and we're always kind of telling himself he's not this bad. And at this point, after he's killed Adriana, we kind of realize, yes, Tony is, and what happens is Melfi tells him, I can't see you anymore. I don't want to see you anymore. And Tony says to her, my, my, my son just killed himself. You can't do this. It's immoral. And he was right. And it's, so we have this immensely immoral character making this correct statement to her that for whatever reason, whether he's been conning her or not, she is the doctor 
is not. You can't leave your patient after he's just so that kind of absurdist but paradoxical view of religion is very much. I think it's a good point in The Sopranos, and and uh, there's a lot of David Lynch as far as aesthetic, but I think you're right. I think theor- you know spiritually, ethically, that kind of absurdism is very close, and and. It also shows the, the the closeness between Catholicism and Judaism. Oh yeah, yeah. it's very yeah, close. I mean, yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, obviously because because Protestantism and Catholicism are both Christian, but Protestantism works on more of kind of a rational kind of a where things work, while Judaism and Catholicism really embraces that the world and God don't make sense. Yes. Yeah. You know? So it's so it's interesting. So I 100%. used to. Um, I used to uh, have a really bad gambling problem, and gambling is is ethnic. So uh, there's a lot of bad gamblers that are Chinese, a lot that are Greek, yep. a lot that are Italians, Italian, and yep. a lot that are conservative and Orthodox Jews. Mm-hmm. And I would go to the casino, and I would see a guy in the full, you know, Orthodox black everything. Oh yeah, and sitting at the blackjack table uh, next to me. And then I got, you know, and I thought about it and it's, it's um, like with Italians and, and Jews, it's a lot of like, there's a lot of mystery and there's a lot of ritual and there's a lot of, this is the way you're supposed to do things. And then you get a little bit older and you start rebelling against that. And one of the ways that you rebel is by going out to the casino and, and blowing all your money. And it's it's funny because even like you know the the, the the two brothers in in this movie, you know you have the two sons of rabbis and you know and it was always like a joke like the the pastor's kids are always bad kids, mm-hmm. you know, and they're they're rebelling against because I and I think a lot of times what happens and again this is from like my study of religion is it's very easy for kids to inherit the ritual. And the fear and the anxiety, but not the actual meaning. So when they get old enough to make their own decisions, they reject that stuff and they and they want to rebel against it because it just seems like this weird thing that was imposed onto them and not explained what the, what the meaning was. Yeah, I mean, the, the rituals we grew up with, they just don't have, you know, I'm sure a lot of the stuff that, you know, for you know when the rabbi puts on the teflon you know he wraps around his arm and you know puts it and all that stuff to outsiders may seem really cool same with catholic you know the the swing of the the incense yeah you know i mean people must look at that but if you grow up with it it's like oh god i want to go play atari you know um and i think you know that happened in hannah and her sisters remember when uh um woody allen's character thought he was going to die from cancer and he decides to become a Catholic. Oh, and yeah. so, you know, he comes back and he's got a big bag and he brings out the stained glass. He yeah. brings out the crucifix. He brings out the mayonnaise. You know, <laughs> and this is what you all need to become a Catholic. Yeah. It was really funny. That's so funny. I made, yeah. a, like, I made a joke in religion class that I still remember because I, I, I got the whole room. The whole room erupted in laughter. And uh, we were, I forget what we were talking about. And I knew the class, there was some like evangelical kids. There were some kids that were secular, that were just interested in religion. And uh, the professor was, I was actually very close to. And he said something about, you know, isn't it interesting about, you know, with uh, vampires, 
like all the ritual with vampires with holy water and crucifix and all this stuff he goes um how would uh how would an evangelical fight a vampire and i just yelled out he would witness to him and the whole class erupted in laughter mm. <laughs> because but that's i mean that's literally what that's what a that's what a protestant does or an evangelical do they they speak the word they don't they don't show you a crucifix and say that you know that's my religion they they talk uh. to you so it would you know it's it's absurd to think that you would try to talk to a vampire about the gospel but that's literally what what an evangelical would do and it was and it was really funny and every and i thought about it i was like yeah that that's a good that's a good joke but um, yeah, it is. It's so it's the difference between, and and I think that's that why joke too, wouldn't like a play lot of, in most comedy clubs because no, no, of course not. Be, you had to be you had to be you have to be in a religion you know, class for that to be. You have to be like, theologically literate to, to even for that to work get to the first step. Yeah, but that's why like the aesthetics of movies. I think it's often you know that's why like when there is religion in movies, it's often um, Catholicism because Catholicism is an easy one to do with shorthand. Oh, and it's all it's all visual. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. you go to a Catholic Symbolic. church. Yeah, you got the twelve. You literally Apostles. got the twelve. Yeah, the twelve. Um, the steps of the the cross. You know, oh, right, right, right. Stations of the cross. Yeah. Yes, and and they they they're not Catholics aren't okay with an empty cross. You know, they they got to <laughs> yeah. have the guy right up there. Yeah, we need our guy. He's got to have a great body. Yeah, the stained you know, glass. Everything. Look, if you see like some of these like new eight, these like kind of new hip ministers, I they they're all wearing like diesel jeans. And like cool Ugh, sneakers, what? you know what I mean? A Catholic priest, the Protestant guys, you yeah. Mean, right? I'm saying like yeah, a Catholic yeah, yeah. priest, you know right away that you're looking at a priest. Yeah, the there's way he's no. Um, yeah, that's why there's no Protestant horror movies. I mean, the, I think Last yeah. Exorcism may be the only one because you know Catholic guys they got all the they got the, the the suits they got you know they got the rights they've got um, all the mysticism. It's all set up. I mean, it's it's why like all my Jesuit professors no matter what i had college they were all big movie fans you know they just they loved to talk when blue velvet came on you know I, every professor i had wanted to talk to me about blue velvet it's so interesting <laughs> yeah. that's fascinating really yeah. yeah so so um i, I do want to say but like we i started following you on twitter and we started engaging back and forth like with film stuff like you write a lot of like cool stuff on um on twitter about movies and i you know i'm always trying to make new uh film twitter friends but I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I, I'm pretty sure the first time I like engaged with you was was something about Flannery O'Connor. And I'm a huge and again, another Catholic artist, uh, very gothic, very dark and very not clear what the morality is of her stories, which is one of the things. And I think maybe the greatest like pound profound, just like the greatest one of the greatest writers uh, in the English language. So you do you teach Flannery O'Connor? Oh yeah, I mean, I teach. I've taught stories. Um, I taught uh, the novel "The Violent Bear It Away." Mm -hmm. um, uh, oh, um, a good man is hard to find. You know, the misfit, um, the river. Um, yeah, you know, one of the things that's great about Flannery O'Connor. I mean, whether religiously or, or literally, it's like you said. It not only is the content absurdism in which. You're trying. It's where things don't reconcile, things don't work out. But the stories work that, that like that. Like you said, they always leave you having to think about and figure it out. You know, I mean, to me, there's no work of art, whether it's a film or a novel or a song, that is actually art. If once you're done with it, 
you're done with it. It finished its job. Yeah. You know, real art never finishes its job. It always kind of stays with you. And O'Connor is really a great person like that. She's also great that, you know, we live in our American culture really has this. And I say this as an atheist, this really kind of, you know, anti-religious, this fear of religion. And I'm not talking about fear of organized religion or criticism, which I can agree with. But the fear of it in general or religious thought that uh, they're not even going to engage it, which Europe yes. doesn't. You know, Europe is full of atheists who read St. Augustine all the time, you know, and they see the value. So one of the things about O'Connor is that's good. And I don't and I'm saying this. There can be good explicitly Christian stuff is that as Catholic as it is, it's not really explicitly Catholic. It's about God. But. You know, it's not like watching the Ten Commandments, yeah. you, you know, or Noah. And I like Noah. It was a good movie. But it, it, it's it's something that really gets people to engage into a different way of thinking and a different way of language. And I think Crimes and Misdemeanors succeeds that in a lot of ways, too. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. well, in, in Ocon In Flannery, like, one, she's hilarious. And, I mean, she was a cartoonist first. And just, like, a really biting sense of humor – and, um, you know, there's I mean, there's a one, one of her essays, you know, she's like they you know, they asked me, like, what can we do to encourage more kids uh, to become artists? And and I said, we should try to discourage as many of them as possible. <laughs> like, that's such a funny thing. But she's she's right. And the stories are I mean, there's she she has a lot of murders uh, in her story and the it's funny because with, with and rapes and yeah, <laughs> with, with movies. And and with books, it's hard to really hit an audience unless the stakes are high, and there's no higher stake than than murder. I mean, I think that's why I've, I've been reading a lot of detective fiction right now, and I've been thinking about you know trying to even possibly write uh, detective fiction, and I'm like, I have to imagine a murder. Like, there's real. I mean, what are you gonna? What is it gonna be? Like, uh, somebody steals a car. Like, there's no novel about a guy solving a car theft. Like, there's a reason. Like, these are these ultimate. Like, the art has to grapple with the ultimate question, which is, I mean, you can't. You literally can't do a worse thing than to kill another human being. So, as an artist, you have to create that. And she's constantly killing characters in her stories. <laughs> and uh, yeah. In an, but in an amazing way, and in a way that's not clear what the morality is, but there's always, she. I think she she said in one somewhere she said that her um, like like in all her stories, like Jesus is like swinging in in a tree somewhere, like you don't you don't quite see him, but you know he's he's there kind of, and that's that's how she kind of handles everything. She doesn't, she never she never wrote. I don't think she ever wrote a story that's just about a Catholic being a Catholic. Yeah, and if so, she would give them a really hard time. I mean, uh, one of the, one of the things, very, very, yeah, one thing that was very important to her. I mean, another thing is she's a southerner. Um, uh, you know, one of her teachers once um, uh, questioned some of the characters she had in the scenarios, and the, they said, you know, that this was kind of grotesque. And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, this is the Deep South. You know, these are places where people, it, you know, the Deep South is not. Boston, New England, it's not a place run by rationality and run by structures. It's a place where people are passionate and people have myths and cultures that are kind of, 
you know, more aesthetic and more visceral than they are cerebral. And then you throw in Catholicism, which it's, is, is too. So she, yeah, all her, but the thing is what's great about it and why so many non-Catholics like her is because it really extends outside of Catholicism. If the story is going to be about a Catholic or a non-Catholic, either way, they are going to face the absurdity of the world and none of them are going to be safe. So it's something that really – and I think Catholics appreciate that too, that they don't have their special little experience. Everyone gets the world that O'Connor sets up for her. Yeah. No, she's – it's – I just went back. It's funny because now with the lockdown and everything, I – so I have never read any of the long Dostoevsky, which is one of my great – it just like weighs over me. I love all the short stuff. I've read all of the short stuff. And I was going to read Brothers Karamazov during the lockdown. And I have not. You haven't started I have not. But so then I was like, well, maybe I'm being too ambitious. Maybe starting with a 900 page really heavy duty novel is not the way to start a lockdown. So I went back and I reread a bunch of Flannery O'Connor stories. And it was incredible. And like, I mean, these are stories that I've read three or five times already. And it, it was incredible. And it made me feel... I wanted to feel like I wasn't wasting the time of, of lockdown. And I felt like I felt invigorated, like as an artist reading, reading these stories again. And she's just, I don't, she's my favorite. She's my favorite writer. It's not even, it's not even close. And, um, and it's funny because, you know, John Houston directed wise blood, Angelica's dad. Um, it's a lot of these, a lot of her stories are very cinematic. And, and again, I, I could see Alan, like it, it ties in with, with this, with this movie a lot, which is, which is because it's, it's a really hard thing to do to want to make a movie that looks good and has good music and has good acting and has resolution and beats and everything, but then also be like really serious and, and heavy at the same time. And I think that, I mean, Flannery O'Connor is kind of the same thing. Like her stories are very funny. They're very well written. And they they stay with you like they don't they don't leave you because of, yeah I, I'm sorry no I was just gonna, because of what what she like her her talent as an artist and what what she's really grappling with yeah first of all I think like you got a movie in itself reading Flannery O'Connor on a on a lockdown it's just, yeah, yeah. It, it sounds like sounds like a setting of a film but um <laughs> yeah I think another important thing about Crimes and Misdemeanors is that it's an 80s movie you know um, you know that the values of that time, and I'm saying I'm revealing my age here and I'm old because I was in college at this time and I was in high school, you know, the values really, um, really kind of uh, um, encouraged that kind of Judah, the, the way that Judah was so celebrated for all his financial and successes and having, knowing about, you know, places in Europe, um, the, the, uh, the worry about money that they had, you know, there were some movies like a lot of the moral movies in the eighties, like fatal attraction or wall street, they more functioned to get people back into the kind of capitalist system. You know, fatal attraction was, Hey, you've got a good thing going with your, you know, beautiful wife, your, your job, you know, don't blow it for these crazy single women. 
you know, Wall Street. Right. Yeah, right. That's the <laughs> whole, know, yeah. Yeah. It's a very out. simple story. <laughs> yeah. And, and Wall Street, well, some people thought would be critical of Wall Street, was actually saying Wall Street's fine as long as these crazy – and I, I'm pretty sure that Gecko was Jewish – uh, these crazy uh, Jewish rogues don't do their stuff. But once they get arrested, Wall Street will be okay. There were mm. very few films saying, question the values of the 80s, question the, the hollowness of the 80s. And, cri- and Crimes and Misdemeanors really does that because a lot of people would have looked on Woody Allen's character as a loser from the get-go. Even if Absolutely. he wasn't – yeah, you know, because he's, he's doing this documentary stuff. Um, you know, it, it, uh, nobody knows it. He's wearing these bad clothes. He's he's working for free, which is seen as like lunacy by everyone in this movie, Ab- basically. Absolutely, and those values, it, it's absolutely losers. And and you know that really kind of disturbing segment with the the sister with her really horrid. Um, experience with the personals and the guy. Oh, I don't yeah. want to go Oh, it. yeah. <laughs> oh, I, forgot about <laughs> I cannot believe we talked. We haven't talked about the funniest part of this movie. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, go ahead. You were about to. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, the, the one thing I will say is I didn't expect it. <laughs> I, I didn't expect. I thought, I thought she was because they're all right. They're basically just describing that. Um, who is it again? The sister of who? It's Woody Allen's sister. Woody Allen's sister. It's yeah. Woody Allen's sister. And she's telling him that she put an ad out in like the, what the I'm too young. I'm showing my age. What the the classifieds? What, what you don't the, even know what classifieds you, are? That's I know what classifieds are, oh, the, but I, I don't understand what she put the her. Personals. They're the personals. So and, like and a Craigslist I, kind of thing. No, it, it was kind of like match. It's kind of like Match.com, mm. except as opposed to now. You know, Match.com is just what people do. You right. Know, t- yeah. Tinder is what people do. That's normal. Back then, if you were on the personals, you were a loser. Oh, I didn't get that implication. Okay, so that was the implication there, that she was sort of like desperate. And okay, so she went out with this guy. And Absolutely, yeah. It, it was, and and it was kind of sweet because you know we we know later when she says when he's just Woody's being really kind of mean to her. He's although he's telling her some smart things like don't let a guy into your house once and let her tie you up. But he's <laughs> he's really giving it to her, and she says you don't know what it's like to be alone. Mm-hmm. You don't know what it's like. My whole life's passing me by with no one to love. Mm-hmm. So it's it's something that should be very sympathetic. But in the film. I don't think Alan's is looking at it as much of a loser, even those characters. But what he's saying, this is what the world does. They see this woman as a loser, and even Alan's character is susceptible to that. That because he, he's not being very sympathetic with her. No, he's playing like older brother kind of role, like protecting yeah. her, and so yeah. you're, don't be so stupid. But basically, he ties her up, and and what what do they call it? Defecates in her face. Like a and s- then steam and- shovel. There's like a term for it. <laughs> I think it's a steam a shovel. Steam shovel? That I is awful. It's something like that. It's I'm something. Sorry, it's something so construction awful. related. Cleveland a- something. I or I don't even want to. Or, or Cleveland trombone. steamer. That's something. Cleveland yeah, yeah, steamer, yeah. That's The rusty trombone's even worse. Yeah. Uh, and hold on. Let me let me say his reaction to her, her saying what it is because she kind of doesn't want to say it. She's like, I can't tell you. I can't tell you what he did. And he's like, No, you have to tell me. You have to tell me. And then she tells him, and he goes, That's the worst thing it could have been. That's the absolute <laughs> worst thing it could have been. It's, it's so funny because honestly, anything else, but I was expecting some sort of like sexual, like obviously it is somewhat sexual for this man, but the I, I just thought it was going to be just, you know, and he had sex with me and it was sort of like a rape thing or something, but I did not expect this. Um, oh God, it, it really caught me off guard and I like belly laughed at that part. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it was, I think it was absolutely. It was, it was it was really kind of a microcosm of the film because it was funny, like you said. It was like he was he was promising her to be so nice, and he's right. just yeah. <laughs> no, but I think that really it really caught though that these these two the, these are the losers of the world, you know, and yeah. the Alan Aldas are are the winners. And this film really did, although it their characters weren't immune to falling into it, it really was a crit- criticism of that. It was really it was one of the few films in the eighties that was kind of critical. So like I said again, for that was made fan- in the eighties, not to cut you off, but yeah. I think it's important to point out because a lot of movies end up being crit- critical of the eighties after the fact. But to be a movie that's made in the eighties that's, you know, se- self aware as this is is pretty rare, I would agree. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so again, it's another case of a man who a very kind of seems to be questionable morals himself seems to have a very keen moral things in his movies. Yeah. That he, yeah. Uh, you know, he, uh, it, one thing is cause that it, Woody Allen clearly does know whether he applies in his life or not. He does He's have aware. a sense of, yes, of what's right and wrong. Correct. And recognizing that that was there, that in a sense, whether God exists or not, he was definitely not there in the eighties. <laughs> yeah. that's a really good uh conclusion well this i mean yeah. this this movie comes out in 1989 so it's the end and i mean this like this whole podcast is about gra- kind of grappling with that the and i, and I think the movies from the 80s a, a lot of them are are more sophisticated than they get credit for and, and that's true and a lot more self more knowing and more satirical than maybe they get credit credit for but it's also i just think it's a great in general it's just a it's a great period of movies that don't necessarily because the seventies were so over the top amazing. And then in the nineties, you have the Tarantinos and the, and the PT Anderson's and the Wes Anderson's, all those guys. I think the, the eighties kind of get lost in the shuffle. So I think that, I mean, there's a, like a ton of great eighties movies that we haven't even gotten to uh, yet on this podcast. And um, no, I I mean, that's one of the things I, I love about, um, going back and looking at these movies is, is um, there's there's more to it than just enjoying just enjoying the film. Even even if it is a Stallone or or a Schwarzenegger film, there's a lot to be unpacked about what what you know the what they mean, what the time period is, what 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 they're selling, what kind of story they're telling to the audience. Um, and to me, that's I mean I. I love that about about doing this on this podcast, but I think you're absolutely right. I think, I think uh, Woody Allen, he, I mean, he nailed it. He definitely. This is a this is a good way to end, end the decade. Yeah. Was hey, well, this, thanks. Yo, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, thanks a lot, guys. I mean, yeah, definitely. Thanks for doing it, man. Yeah. No. This. I mean, yeah. this. This was amazing. I'm so glad that we were finally able uh, to connect. It, it took a pandemic, but if that's what it takes. <laughs> Uh, but thank you so much for doing this. Is there anything you wanna you wanna plug at all? Um, let's see. Your Twitter uh, handle, like, maybe. Uh, I played Ad Astra. I think it's the most underrated film of uh, 2019. <laughs> I I, I uh, oh, watched right. it a few times. I, I think I don't know how. I think it got lost somewhere. It wasn't quite the pit vehicle people wanted, but I really think it's a brilliant, beautiful film. So I would definitely. Plug that Astra. You know what's funny? I'll go is watch it. I'm Hell a yeah. huge James Gray guy, and I and I actually haven't seen Ad Astra yet. For some reason, you gotta watch I it. Avoid Peter. it. But I, really, but I, James Gray is I think uh, is a '70s filmmaker stuck in the 2010s and the 2020s, which is a oh, th- yeah. thing this that is, I love about right. him. 
but yeah, I mean, I love James Gray, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that. So that's a that's a good reminder that I got to go ahead and, and finally watch that movie. But um, yeah, no, thank you again, uh, Alex. Is there anything else going on with you? Everything's good. I mean, uh, yeah, everything's good. You can check out my I, I do I co-host another podcast called Last Exit to Brooklyn. You can check it out on YouTube, Spotify, I, iTunes, all those places. But uh, otherwise, I'm not doing any comedy anywhere else because you can't. Uh, yeah, and we're just you know just doing doing everything living in jersey for now we're but just holding uh, tight. Th- thanks so much uh it was great to meet you i'll, I'll give you a follow on twitter because i i'll talk to peter and see where i could I'm, I'm i'm starting to follow the film twitter people and i don't know we'll see i'm not usually i'm not the biggest movie guy but this podcast has definitely turned me into one in some ways so um yeah and and i do want to personally thank you because when, when a guest picks a good movie that i'm actually going to rewatch and is in my catalog. I like to personally thank them. So thank you because this movie is very, very, very good. And we've done about 75 episodes and I'd say maybe half of them have not been. So, uh, <laughs> and, and that's the, that's a risk you take when you have the guest pick all the movies, but, but this, this was a really enjoyable one. So thanks. Oh, definitely. Thank you, Alex. Yeah. And, uh, and Peter, yeah. Is that it? Do you have that's anything, it. man? Nope. We'll see you guys next time. All right. Okay. Bye. Take Bye, care, everyone. Guys. Bye guys. Mm-hmm.